Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will once again deep dive into the world of game theory, this time exploring how it applies to Major League Baseball and free agency. Beginning with a discussion of the history and evolution of baseball and the conflicts between owners and players, we will set the scene and explain why free agency is so important to both actors. We will then move to dissect how free agency works in the big three professional leagues before concluding with a conversation about what game theory can teach us about Mookie Betts in his path towards free agency next offseason. So, if you've ever wondered how players and owners can use game theory to gain an upper hand in negotiating contracts in free agency, or if you've ever wondered what happened throughout time to make Mookie Betts' free agency offseason so important to the future of the game, then this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. The trade of Mookie Betts from the Boston Red Sox to Los Angeles Dodgers struck Boston fans hard this offseason. Not only did they trade away one of the best five players in baseball in a central piece to their 2018 World Series championship team and a player that's just now entering his prime, but they did so purely to save money while at the same time increasing the cost of tickets to fans, infuriating and confusing everyone. Following the trade, principal owner John Henry released a statement that read, in part, quote, The baseball organizations we compete against have become much more strategic and thoughtful about how and where they spend their resources in their quest for titles. We cannot shy away from tough decisions required to aggressively compete for World Series. That is what led to this trade. Free agency plays into many decisions clubs like ours have to make. Today's players spend years in the minor and major leagues, earning the right to be paid in a free market, earning the right to make choices. They make significant sacrifices to get there, and they deserve what they receive. Clubs also have to make choices as well in this economic system. End quote. He goes on to later say, quote, It's not the system's fault that the Red Sox ended up in this position. We were faced with a difficult choice. You can talk about dollars, you can talk about metrics and value, but in the end, even though we are consistently among the highest spenders in baseball, we have to make hard judgments about competing for the future as well as the present, end quote. Mookie, for his part, heading into the offseason, seemed to echo a similar sentiment about the system and the role he played in it. As Buster only said in an interview on WEEI, quote, he, meaning Mookie, understands his importance to the union, and the union needs guys like him to get to free agency. We've seen guys like Garrett Cole and how much they've pulled the numbers up. The numbers meaning the amount of money players earn. And Mookie will have the ability to do just that, end quote. So what exactly is this system that Henry is referring to? How does it work? And how does Mookie's desire to enter into free agency and help the union play into everything? And maybe most importantly for our conversation today, what does all of that have to do with game theory? Before we dive into those questions, we need to first understand a little bit more about the history and development of professional baseball. 
Though most people have heard that Abner Doubleday created the game of baseball in 1839 in Cooperstown, New York, it isn't in fact true. The true origins of baseball are a lot more mysterious, as it can't really be linked to one specific person or one specific time period. It can't even be specifically linked only to America. Rather, sport historians have noted that games resembling baseball have been a part of the American sports scene since the 18th century, as Americans played sports like rounders and cricket, which slowly morphed into what we now consider baseball. These early baseball games had far different rules and objectives than the modern day game we know today, but in 1845, the New York Knickerbocker Baseball Club, and more specifically, Alexander Cartwright, wrote up what is considered the basis for modern baseball rules, establishing uniform rules like the three-strike rule, or foul lines, and the shape of the infield. The games that would take place at this time were between different clubs, often representing different parts of the city or different organizations. They were played for a combination of fun and bragging rights. As the contest slowly started to grow in popularity, more and more people started going to the parks where the games were being played to watch and engage with others as a form of socialization. It was common to take your family and take a picnic and spend the whole day just watching the events and talking and playing around yourselves. The growth in the size of the crowds, though, led to some teams deciding to start to charge a small amount for fans to be able to watch what was occurring on the field. This resulted in the building of primitive stadiums, which were just really fences around the playing fields to keep out those individuals who weren't paying. As more and more people started to pay to go and watch these games being played, the prestige of winning the contest in front of these crowds grew. And in 1869, the Cincinnati Red Stockings came up with a revolutionary idea to try to help them win. They decided to offer money to people to play for their team. Their logic? If they offered money to players, they would be able to attract the best athletes to their team, which would result in them winning more games, which would lead to more people willing to pay money to come out and see them play, which in turn would lead to the owners of the teams making more money for themselves. The salary for that first professional team in 1869 was a whopping $11,000, which is about $200,000 in today's money. More importantly, though, this act of paying the best player's money paid off, and the Red Stockings went on to win 130 consecutive games around the country. Other teams, as a result, seeing the success of the Red Stockings, very quickly followed suit and began to pay their players. The development of so many professional teams called for the forming of a professional league to help level the playing field and establish uniform rules guiding how teams operated on and off the playing field. The first professional baseball league was established in 1871 and called the National Association of Professional Baseball Players, which was essentially replaced five years later in 1876 by the National League of Professional Baseball Players, more commonly known today as the National League. As the National League continued to have success, more leagues formed and folded around the National League over the years, continuing to battle for the profit that could be made from the sport. The most notable league that was established to compete against the National League was the American League of Professional Baseball Clubs, more commonly known today 
as the American League, which was established in 1901. After competing against each other for players and stealing away the best players from each other's teams and not really honoring the contractual limits of the other leagues, the National League and American League decided to work together. And in 1903, they began a tradition of having the winner of each league play against each other in a series of games to establish who the best baseball team in the world was. While this series, which would become known as the World Series, helped bring the leagues together, each league continued to operate independent of the other, a system that has led to the birth of slightly different rules that we still see remnants of today. Think of the AL, which allows a DH, and the NL, which doesn't have one. So while the cooperation between the leagues was good for the owners, in that they weren't now competing against each other for players, the same cannot be said of the players who had very restrictive contracts with their clubs. More specifically, all players' contracts had something called the reserve clause in it, which limited the ability of the players to select which team they could play for. More specifically, the reserve clause was a part of players' contracts, which stated that when a player's contract with a team ended, the team that they had just played for still had the right to that player. The player could not just go and sign with any team they wanted. They had to first see if the team they had just finished with wanted them to come back. And if the team wanted them to come back, they had to come back if they still wanted to play baseball. And they had to do so at a much smaller price tag than they had just had. So the reserve clause not only restricted the movement of players, it also helped keep the salaries of the players low. Without the option of entering into a free and open marketplace where competitors could bid on players, thus resulting in a player maximizing the amount of money they could earn, the owners were able to set low salaries in essentially a take-it-or-leave-it manner. If the player wanted to continue to play professional baseball, they had to take the salary that was offered by the club. If they thought that the salary was too low or not in line with what their value was to the franchise, the only other option they had was not to play. Now, the players were quick to realize how unfair such a practice was. Essentially, in a capitalistic society like ours, it didn't seem right. So they sought to band together and form a union to try to combat the reserve clause, thus challenging the small salaries that had been placed on players. To do so, John Montgomery Ward and eight other players established the Brotherhood of Professional Baseball in 1885, which was the first players' union in professional sport history. The union was ultimately unsuccessful in what they sought out to do, and it gave way to another player union in 1900 called the Players' Protective Association, which then gave way in 1912 to the Fraternity of Professional Baseball Players in America, which then gave way in 1946 to the American Baseball Guild. Even though all of these unions were out there, none of them were successful in fighting the owners, ending the reserve clause, and increasing the salaries of players to what would be considered a fair market value. That began to change, though, in 1965, when the players brought in an individual named Marvin Miller, who had previously worked for the United Steelworkers of America Union, to help form a more powerful and successful organization. The work paid off in 1968. The MLB Players Union was able to negotiate the first ever collective bargaining agreement, or CBA, with Major League Baseball. Now, a collective bargaining agreement is a legal contract between the union and management that sets the standards for which the players or employees are to be treated. 
But generally, CBAs include such things as how much people will be paid or their wages, what hours are worked, um, and different types of terms and conditions of employment. The first CBA between the MLBPA, or the Major League Baseball Players Association, and Major League Baseball was notable in that it raised minimum salaries from $6,000 to $10,000. But more importantly... It gave the union credibility, and it set a framework for how negotiations between the two actors would be handled going forward. The important thing for the owners in the MLB in this negotiation, though, was that they were able to keep the reserve clause in place. Over the years, the MLBPA and the MLB owners went back and forth negotiating new CBAs, with the main issues continuously being around the reserve clause, free agency, and salary. The first two issues were inevitably linked, as the reserve clause, as we've pointed out, kept the best players from going on to the free market. Without that free market and free agency for players, other teams were not able to bid on the best players thus letting the market establish the price points or the salaries. To combat this issue, the MLBPA and their CBA negotiations continued to try to get the league to do away with the reserve clause. The league was unrelenting though. Kurt Flood famously took this issue to court when he sued the MLB after being traded from the St. Louis Cardinals to the Philadelphia Phillies in 1969. In the lawsuit, Flood refused to go to the Phillies, stating, quote, after 12 years in the major leagues, I do not feel that I'm a piece of property to be bought and sold irrespective of my wishes. I believe that any system which produces that result violates my basic rights as a citizen and is inconsistent with the laws of the United States and our several states, end quote. Though Flood ultimately lost the lawsuit that was appealed all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, the fight empowered the players and the union. In 1975, two other players, Andy Messersmith and Dave McNally, once again challenged the reserve clause, suing the league. Instead of going to court, though, they went into binding arbitration, and they won the players the right to enter into free agency. In short, the arbiter said that the reserve clause could only be used to keep a player for one additional year after their contract ended, instead of the perpetual renewal of contracts that had existed. However, the introduction of free agency didn't automatically fix the issues the players had with salaries, as in multiple years, the owners acted together to repress the salaries of free agencies. Just as with the reserve clause, the owners didn't want to bid against each other for players, thus causing a bidding award and increasing the salaries of all the players, for feel that the salaries would continue to rise in perpetuity to the point where they would take a hit in their pocketbooks. So they worked together behind the scenes to keep each other from bidding too much for a player's services. The players union saw what was happening and filed in one a grievance against the owners. Actually, they won multiple grievances against the owners who over the years up until the year 1990 continued to collude behind the scenes to try to repress player salaries. The final court settlement in 1990 resulted in the players being awarded $280 million in damages. Following this, it might not surprise you that the owners actually locked out the players in the spring of 1990, and the players responded four years later by going on strike for 232 days all over the issue of the owners' continual efforts to keep salaries down. Now, during this time, new CBA agreements had come and gone. 
but the issue of players' salaries has been constant. The owners have continued to find ways to try to create salaries as low as possible while the players continue to fight for more and more money. Before you start feeling too bad for baseball players though, you should know that this issue is not something that is unique to the MLB, as all professional sport leagues have faced similar challenges. However, it's important for our conversation today that you know and understand how the other leagues have gone about rectifying the issues as they stand in stark contrast from Major League Baseball. So let's move our focus for a second, not just from baseball, but to all the big three professional sports in America. And that is the National Basketball Association, or the NBA, the National Football League, or the NFL, and, as we've been talking about, Major League Baseball. And let's begin by discussing free agency in each league to highlight some similarities and some stark contrasts. Now, a free agent in the big three sport leagues in America is classified as, quote, a player who's not under contract and is free to negotiate and sign a player contract with any team. Generally speaking, there are a few ways to become a free agent in each league. Individuals become free agents once their current contract has expired. If a player is not drafted, then they become a non-drafted rookie, then they are considered a free agent and can sign with any team. Or if a player is cut or bought out and then they clear waivers, they become a free agent and they can go inside with any team. There is some variance in each league though. The NBA and NFL are similar and they both have something called restricted free agents and unrestricted free agents. To be an unrestricted free agent, it means that the player can sign with any team with no limitations. Contrast that to a restricted free agent, which is referred to in the NBA as, quote, meaning a veteran free agent who is subject to a team's right of first refusal in accordance with Article 9, end quote. In other words, if you're a restricted free agent, the team that held your last contract has the right to match any contract offer that is made to the player. If the team that has held the contract chooses to match the contract that is offered to the player, then the player has to stay with that first team. This occurs when a player comes to the end in basketball of their rookie contract, and it's somewhat like the reserve clause circa 1975. Put simply, at the end of the player's first contract, they become a restricted free agent, and they can go out and they have the right to negotiate a new deal with any team in the league. Once they reach an agreement, their previous team has 48 hours to match the contract that is given to them or to offer them a better contract. If they choose to exercise that right and sign the player to the exact same contract or offer him a better contract, the player must return to that team. If the team chooses not to exercise that right and doesn't want to match the contract, then the player gets to go and sign with that new team. Though you hear about it a lot less in the NFL, just like the NBA, the NFL does have a clause in the CBA saying that players at the conclusion of their third year, if they do not have a contract for the fourth year, become a restricted free agent. Now, in addition to having restricted free agency, the NFL also has tags that they can assign players to keep them from entering into free agency. There is the franchise tag, which is very similar to the reserve clause, and it allows the teams to keep one unrestricted free agent off the open market by giving a player a one-year contract they can either choose to accept 
or if they don't want to accept the contract, then they can't play. The NFL also has something called a transition player tag, which they can again give to one player each year. It makes that one player who is an unrestricted free agent, it makes them a restricted free agent. Major League Baseball, though, is a different beast entirely when it comes to free agency. They don't have any type of unrestricted free agents. They don't have any type of tags that you can put on players. Rather, once a player is no longer under contract, they are a free agent. And they have the ability to go and sign with any team they desire. The big difference, though, is that they cannot become a free agent until after they have played six years in the major leagues. Not just six years in professional baseball, but six years in the majors. Now, there are some circumstances where they can, for example, be cut by a team, where they can become a free agent before that six years. But the main point here is that the good to great players cannot become free agents until after their sixth season of service. Compare this to the NFL or the NBA, where players become restricted free agents After just their third year of service, Major League Baseball has much more control over their young talent. Baseball is also different in that after your first three years in the majors, players have the ability to go into something called arbitration to try to raise their salaries. Before then, they are primarily paid at or slightly above the league minimum, which helps keep the payroll of the team down and helps teams avoid spending huge amounts of money for unproven players only to have them become a bust, which we oftentimes see in the NFL and the NBA. How it works is after your third year and up until your six years, players may submit the issue of the player's salary to final and binding arbitration without the consent of the club. The player and the team can then work to avoid going to the arbiter by negotiating a new salary for the player. But if the two sides don't come to an agreement, then both sides go together to the arbiter and they present their case as to why the player either deserves to make more money or does not deserve more money. What they are basically arguing is how valuable the player is to the club, noting such things as their overall performance, specific qualities of leadership and public appeal, the length and consistency of their career contributions, the record of the player's past compensation, They provide comparative baseball salaries, the existence of any physical or mental defects on the part of the player. They look at things like the recent performance of the club, including but not limited to its league standing in attendance as an indication of public acceptance of the player. Now, they can't present just anything they want. The financial position of the player in the club cannot be taken into consideration by the arbiter, nor can comments that are made by the press about the player or the team or the salaries of players in other sports. So based on all this information that's presented to the arbiter, the arbiter then decides how much the player will make, which is binding. This existence of arbitration in baseball is unique, and it helps increase the amount of money a player is making before they hit free agency, and it helps to raise the salaries of all ballplayers. Once baseball players become free agents, their previous club does have a short window in which they can offer a player what's called a qualifying offer. This offer is a one-year contract worth the average of the top 125 players in the league. The player then has 10 days to consider the offer. During that 10-day time period, they can go out and talk with other teams and consider other offers as well. They can also negotiate longer contracts with the team that's making them the qualifying offer. Now, if the player chooses to turn down the qualifying offer and signs with a new team, then the team that submitted the qualifying offer gets draft picks as a form of compensation for losing that player. 
So, regardless of league, hopefully you can see that all these policies about free agency are inevitably tied to money and how each league decides to deal with paying players. Primarily, how they try to reduce their cost of the players to hopefully increase how much the team and the owners can make. The NFL and NBA have other policies in place to try to help do this as well, something that's known as a salary cap. That is a stipulation in their CBAs that limits to various degrees how much a team can spend on players and how much, as a result, players can make. Here, we really have two views we have to dissect, both the macro and the micro. From the macro perspective, we need to look at how leagues determine how much money should go to the players. In the NBA and the NFL, this is done through establishing a cap on how much teams can spend on players. This is called a salary cap, which is by definition a limit placed on the amount of money an organization is able to spend or pay employees. In the NFL and the NBA, the salary cap is determined through a somewhat complex math calculation. The short version is that both leagues start by adding up all the money that they make in a year. In the NBA, the summation is called the basketball-related income, or BRI. In the NFL, they call it in their CBA, quote, all revenue. So you add up all that money. And then you take that summation and you give the players a portion of that money. In the NFL... The players get 47% of all the revenue. In the NBA, the players get 44.74% of basketball-related income. Now, when I say salary cap for the NBA, I have to put it in air quotes because the NBA is what we call a soft cap, meaning that teams actually can choose to spend more than that cap if they would like, but if they spend more, then they actually have to pay a tax back to the league. So for every dollar they go over, they actually have to pay money back to the league, which then gets distributed to the teams that didn't go over. The NFL is almost identical to the NBA, minus two key differences. First, like I already said, the NFL players get a higher percentage of the money. They get 47% of all the revenue versus 44%. The second major difference between the NFL's cap and the NBA's cap is that while the NBA's cap is a soft cap that teams can choose to go over by paying a tax... The NFL has more of a quote-unquote hard cap, which means that teams cannot go over that cap number that is set. I don't want to get too far in the weeds with this, but that's not exactly true. Teams actually can go over it. There's a rolling average that I don't want to get into right now. But the main point is that both of these leagues, in different ways but similarly, try to cap how much money goes towards the players. Major League Baseball, though, is again completely different. Just like they deal with free agency in a completely different way, Major League Baseball deals with salary caps in a completely different way. And the easiest way to say it is there is no salary cap in baseball, which, if you've been following, means that players are not promised any percentage of the total revenue generated by baseball teams. The only stipulation of a contract or amount of money that is really in the CBA is the minimum amount you can pay a player, which for the 2020 season is right around $565,000. So instead of a cap, teams only have these loose restrictions on what they can spend. These restrictions come in the form of a competitive balance tax, or a CBT. That is a tax that you have to pay to the other teams who did not go over the tax the previous year. The idea that the owners want 
all the teams in the leagues to be competitive. But if one team is spending a billion dollars on player salary, and the other team is spending a million dollars, the team that is spending the billion dollars will have an unfair advantage. Just think back to that very first professional baseball team we talked about, the Cincinnati Red Stockings, that was the only team paying players at the time, which they were able to then attract the best players, and they won 130 consecutive games. Baseball owners today don't want that. So they set this threshold that if a team exceeds, they have to pay a tax on how much they exceed the threshold by. That money goes to all the other teams in the league that didn't go over the tax threshold. And those teams are supposed to use the money to reinvest into their ball clubs to bring in better players for them to pay their players more, thus hopefully creating a balanced playing field. That is at least the thought behind it. Now, the easiest way to understand and explain how it really works is to go through and to look at an example of the CBT for the 2020 contract year. So for the 2020 season, the CBT threshold or the competitive balance tax threshold is $208 million. If a team spends over that number on its players, and it's the first year that they've gone over the threshold, the club has to pay a 20% tax on every dollar they are over the threshold. So if they spend $1 million over the threshold, they would have a tax bill of $200,000. If it's the second year in a row that they're over the threshold, then they have to pay a 30% tax instead of a 20% tax. And if it's the third straight year over or more straight years over, they have to pay a 50% tax. So if they're $1 million over, in 2020, and they exceeded this threshold in 2019 and in 2018, then they would have a competitive balance tax bill of half a million dollars. And that half a million dollars would go into a pot with all the other money that's collected and then be redistributed to all the other teams that didn't exceed it. There is an additional surcharge for teams who are 20 to $40 million over and another additional surcharge for teams that are more than $40 million over that threshold. In the CBA, they call these the first and second surcharges. For every dollar that a team is within that first threshold, so 20 to $40 million over, they have to pay an additional 12% tax on the money in that threshold. And then for every dollar in that second threshold, they have to pay an additional 45% tax. So if you do the math, if you're three years in a row over and you are spending more than $40 million, let's say you're $80 million over, that means you're going to be paying on a portion of that money over a 95% tax back to leak, which in theory can get to be quite a lot. So let's bring this all back to where we began the podcast with the Red Sox, John Henry, and Mookie Betts. Last year in the 2019 season, the Red Sox had an estimated $240 million in payroll. Now the competitive balance tax for last year was $206 million. Simple math would tell you that the team is $34 million above the CBT. So let's just assume for start that this was the first year that they were over the competitive balance tax. The first $20 million that they go over, they're taxed at a 20% rate, which comes to them owing $4 million back to the league. But remember, they're not just $20 million over the tax, they're $34 million over the tax. 
After that first 20 million over, now that additional 14 million over, they're taxed at a 32% rate because that's above that first surcharge threshold. So for that $14 million taxed at a 32% tax rate, they owe an additional $4.48 million. All told in 2019, if this was the first time that they had exceeded the cap, then they would owe Major League Baseball $8.48 million. However, that's not the case because in 2018, the Red Sox had the highest payroll in baseball at roughly $223 million, which was $26 million over the CBT. And in 2017, they had a payroll of $199.8 million, which was approximately $4 million over the competitive balance tax. So 2019 was in fact the third straight year they went over the tax, which as we said, means you accrue an additional tax money. So that means they have to pay 50% tax on the first $20 million. And then they have to pay 62% tax on that additional $14 million. If you do the math, that comes out to a tax bill of $18.68 million that's due to the league. For the 2020 season, before Mookie and David Price were traded, the Red Sox were projected to be, again, about $20 million over the tax threshold. This would have been the fourth consecutive year they had been over, which would have resulted in them paying another $10 million payment to the league. The bigger issue, though, was not just this season, but by still having Mookie and David Price on the team going forward into the future, the team ran the risk of not only staying over the threshold in the upcoming 2020 season, but to be significantly over that first threshold and maybe up even into that second threshold in the future seasons when they would be paying Mookie Betts one of the biggest contracts in the history of the game. That meant that you're getting now into a potential tax bill of $20 million or more. Now, these seem like staggering numbers, but context is important. We have to take into consideration how much the Red Sox are making. Because remember, in the NFL and the NBA, the salary cap is set based off how much the league is making. In Major League Baseball, there is no cap. We don't take these numbers into consideration with how much the teams are making. So while it sounds like a lot to pay $20 million back to the league in addition to your salary that you're paying your players, let's hold that thought for a second and let's examine how much the Red Sox made, at least the projections of what they made for the 2018 season. Again, these are projections. This is a privately held business. But from all the records that I could find, in 2018, the Red Sox organization made approximately $516 million. They made half a billion dollars. If you account for the team payroll, and the tax payment that they had in the 2018 season, the organization itself still made $276 million. That's not all profit, because this team still has to pay salaries of their coaching staff, of their other employees, they have operating costs that go into the stadium and other expenses, and we don't know what those exact costs are, but let's just imagine that all those additional costs of the additional salaries, of stadium maintenance, of everything else that goes into the team, let's just say that that's another $200 million. I think that's a fairly liberal estimate, so let's do the math. 
the team made $516 million in 2018. After we account for paying the players and paying the competitive balance tax, the team still has $276 million. If we estimate that all the other cost of running the team is around $200 million, that still leaves us over $50 million that the team has. That money goes to the owners of the team. That's a lot of money. So all that is to say, well, it makes sense that the Red Sox would like to get under the competitive tax threshold to quote-unquote reset how much they would have to pay going forward. When it comes down to it, we're not talking about saving hundreds of millions of dollars. We're talking about the owners maybe making $10 million instead of $20 million. Or maybe the owners making $40 million instead of $50 million. When it comes down to it, the question about whether we should trade Mookie Betts as a franchise becomes a lot more complicated. All this leads us into now attaching game theory to MLB free agency in the case of trading Mookie Betts. The game of MLB free agency is a combination of a sequential and simultaneous zero-sum game. What does that mean? Well, it's sequential because a team makes an offer and the player can then choose to accept the offer, reject the offer, or counter the offer. If they choose to counter the offer, then the team can choose to accept, reject, or counter back. And this goes on until either the offer is accepted and the game ends, or the offer is rejected and the game ends. Within this sequential game, we also have a simultaneous game being played out in free agency because there are multiple teams that are potentially making offers to the player at the same time. And each of those teams that are making the offers does not have direct knowledge of what the other teams are doing. And each team is making offers to multiple players without knowing what each player is doing. In the end, though, the player can only choose one team, meaning that there can only be one winner, which makes this a zero-sum game. From a player and union standpoint, free agency is vital. Because as we previously discussed with the brief history of the MLB and the MLBPA, free agency allows players to enter into a market and receive the maximum value for their skill set. The value that the player gets then sets the mark for future players in negotiations. For example, let's say that the best player in baseball, one of the best players in the history of the game, Mike Trout, were to become a free agent. Since he is the best player in baseball, multiple teams would probably want to get involved in the game of bidding for his services. But how much should each team bid? Remember, they don't know how much the other teams are bidding. They don't even know how many other teams are involved. If they did know all this, let's say that the teams talk to each other and discuss it, then that would be collusion, which is exactly what got MLB sued and led to that $280 million lawsuit in 1990. So I'll ask again, what would you bid? There would probably be a number of factors that you would want to take into consideration as you shape your initial offer. Maybe things like how much revenue your team generates, how close you are to the competitive balance tax threshold, if you're willing to go over that threshold and pay the tax. How many years in a row have you been over that threshold might also come into consideration if you've been over uh, consecutively at all. Your team makeup would stipulate what you're willing to bid, meaning how badly do you need an outfielder, which is Mike Trout's position. How much you think you can sell tickets for or how much your revenue will increase if you sign him would probably be a consideration that you take into effect when constructing your bid. 
There are probably a hundred other things that you would also take into consideration. But one of the biggest factors look at is how much similar players, meaning players that have roughly the same skill set, roughly the same stats, at roughly the same age, you look at how much those players are currently making under their contract. We use those contracts to shape and negotiate future contracts for players. If an identical player just signed a new contract, let's say last season, for $100 million over five years, then it's probably pretty reasonable if I'm a ball club wanting Mike Trout on my team to offer him the same contract or maybe even slightly more in free agency. That's not a guarantee that he ends up picking my team, but it at least lets me know that I'm in the ballpark for what he might cost. And it puts me in a good position for the player not just to reject my offer, but potentially to counter my offer back, and so we can continue in this game. For teams that are involved in the game, it's not just about signing Mike Trout, remember. It's about being able to sign him for the least amount of money possible. Remember, sports teams are businesses. The owners are looking to maximize their profits. If you offer Mike Trout $400 million over 10 years, and the next best offer he got was $200 million over 10 years, you would probably win, quote unquote, and get Mike Trout to sign with your team, but you did so at an extra cost of $200 million. That extra $200 million you just spent on him probably limits the amount of money you can go and spend on another player meaning you probably could have gotten him to sign for much, much less. The exact cost you spend to acquire him might cost you down the road. It might limit other player choices, as we said, and it might hurt my team because now I might be exceeding that that competitive balance tax threshold and I might generate more expenses for my organization. So in the game of MLB free agency, the main strategy of the team is to sign the player for the least amount of money possible. But... If I bid too low, then I risk losing the player and having him not even want to engage in a negotiation with me, and now I miss out on everything. So there are challenges both ways. The goal of the player, interestingly, is the exact opposite of the team. They're trying to maximize the amount of money they can earn. There are some caveats here. Sometimes we see players choose a team not just because of the money, but also because it gives them the greatest chance to win a championship, or might be close to family, or there might be some other factor. But all these things being equal, the players are going to try to maximize how much money they can make. The only real way that they can do this, though, is to actually get into free agency and actually play the game of trying to get as many teams as possible to bid for them and drive up their cost. Teams know this, and they will often try to negotiate long-term contracts with players in year four, five, or six of the player's contract. Remember, that's right before the player goes on the open market. During this time, before the player goes in the open market and enters into free agency, the game changes because now we only have two players, meaning we have a very simple sequential game. There's no simultaneous game going on because other teams are not allowed to contact and try to negotiate a contract with a player who's currently under contract. Since only the team that holds the player's contract is allowed to negotiate a new contract with the player while they're under contract, the team can gain a decisive advantage. They don't have to worry about what other teams are offering the player because they're the only team. They might have to worry about what a player might be offered in the future, but because they are playing the game by themselves, they now have the advantage. This forces the player into a tough decision. Take the money that is offered by the club in year four, five, or six of your contract, or 
turn it down and risk going into free agency. Now, I say risk because I believe that it is a risk. What if they get hurt during their season before they become a free agent? Or what if they have a down year and their statistics drop off right before they go into free agency? Well, either of those occurrences would significantly hurt their value. A team might have been offering them $100 million, but they get hurt, and now teams are only willing to offer $50 million. The contrast is if they continue to produce at a high level and they don't get hurt and they go into free agency and they might be able to generate a bidding award for their services and they can drastically increase the salaries that they can receive. So all that background about game theory and what game's going on here and all that background about Major League Baseball and their history and how the competitive balance tax works leads us back to Mookie Betts, a player that is entering into his sixth year of playing in the MLB. During his first five seasons, he is a four-time All-Star, a four-time Gold Glove winner, a three-time Silver Slugger. He's a player who led the AL in batting average in 2018 when he hit 346. He also led the league in runs in 2018 and 2019. He won the AL MVP in 2018 and won the World Series the same year. Before they traded Mookie, the Red Sox tried to get a leg up in free agency game and discussed offering him a $300 million deal over 10 years. They tried to simplify the complex game into a single sequential game just between them and Mookie. Now, in the history of baseball, there have only been five contracts worth more than $300 million, and only four contracts that have averaged $30 million or more over the course of eight or more years. So, Considering how good Mookie is with all of those stats I gave you, making him an offer that would make him one of the top four or five highest paid players ever seems reasonable. Mookie, however, countered back that offer, saying he wanted $420 million over 12 years, a contract that would make him the second highest paid player ever, only behind Mike Trout, who signed a 12-year contract worth north of $430. million, which got him paid around $36 million a year. The reason for such a high counteroffer? Well, Mookie feels like he is one of the top two players in the game, and he thinks he'd be able to get that deal if he were to enter into the free agent market and get multiple teams bidding against each other for him. Maybe more importantly, though, as we mentioned at the outset of the podcast, he knew that it was important not just for himself to get paid as much money as possible, but it was important for the other players in the league. You see, just as I did when I compared the Red Sox offer and Mookie's counteroffer to other players, teams and players do the same thing when they're negotiating deals. They look at other players' contracts, and then they compare themselves to those players to try to determine their value. If a player like Mookie were to accept a deal that gives him less than what he is valued at, then he would set a bad precedent for future free agents and potentially stifle how much money they could earn. The only way to determine what your value is, though, is to play the game and go into free agency. In the simultaneous sequential zero-sum game that we have described here, going into free agency gives the player the upper hand against their opponent. They can play the other teams off one another to try to maximize their outcome and benefit not only themselves, but also the future players that we mentioned. Teams know this, though, so they try to gain that advantage by negotiating with the players before other teams can become involved. 
they try to put the player in a tough situation where they have guaranteed money that is offered to them on the table versus the unknown of their future performance, the unknown of future injuries, and the unknown of what other teams might offer. Mookie, however, was in a unique position. Because he has already had such a good career, won so many awards, performed at the highest level both offensively and defensively, he feels that he'd be able to get more offers regardless of how good his performance is this season and regardless of if he were to get hurt this season. He saw past players like Manny Machado and Garrett Cole take similar paths and get minimum 10-year deals worth $300 million. Players that, in all honesty, are great but are not seen as great as Mookie. And he knew that in an open market, he could get paid at least the same contract. Now, he is gambling that teams will want to pay him more, but he's hoping that that gamble pays off and helps the entire league and all the players that are in it. The Red Sox, on the other hand, looked at the counteroffer they received. They looked at the CBT and how much they would have to spend not only on their 40-man roster, but also on the competitive balance tax. And they decided that Mookie's desire to become a free agent was too risky for them. They could keep him, be over the CBT for the fourth consecutive year, compete for a title, tender him an offer, and then get into a bidding war for him as a free agent, all just to probably see him go somewhere else for far more money than they're willing to pay. Or they could trade him, get back some players who have some type of value to them, go below the CBT, win about half their games this year, and then start planning for the future. In terms of game theory, they went to the end of the game, they worked backwards. They did something that we call reverse induction. And they decided that the best move, the move that would help them achieve their goals the most, both in the short term and the long term, was to go the latter path and trade Mookie away. As John Henry wrote in his statement to the fans, that the cost of Mookie going into free agency was too high, and thus, they chose to trade him. Only time will tell if they made the right decision. Maybe Mookie goes into free agency and he gets his $400 million contract and helps set a new standard for player salaries, helping the union and his fellow ball players. He could also have a great career and show that he is worth all that money and that the Red Sox should have paid him. Or maybe he falls off and never achieves the same success that he did in 2018, showing that the Red Sox were right not to pay him. Or maybe he goes into free agency and there are far fewer bidders for him and he is only able to get the exact same deal that the Red Sox were initially offering. Or maybe he even gets a little bit less. The only thing that is certain is that it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next year. And hopefully now, after listening to this podcast, you understand a bit more how game theory is helping both sides play the best game possible. If you have any questions about Major League Baseball's free agency or about game theory, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at The Sport Professor. Follow us to stay up to date about upcoming podcasts and to get the latest news from around the sport industry. Until next time, though, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast.